the end, gold will win. I think that is the asset that everybody will ultimately flee to as this, you know, current monetary system, fiat currency, however you want to describe this, as this crisis develops, I think ultimately gold is the one that comes out on top, but it's not going to be a straight line and there will, and, and the dollar will do very well if for no other reason than that the game is rigged in the dollar's favor. And so... Welcome to the Gold Exchange Podcast, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome back to the Gold Exchange Podcast. My name is Benjamin Vernadelstein. I'm joined as always, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner, and our special guest today, CEO of Santiago Capital and the inventor of the dollar milkshake theory, Brent Johnson. Welcome back to the podcast, Brent. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to it. Now, Brent, before the podcast started, we were talking about gold and Keith's trip abroad. And I thought, okay, guys, we, we need to we need to let the rest of the world in on, on their kind of inside scoop. So, Keith, I'll start with you. There is a lot of talk between East and West. Hey, you know, uh, China, Saudi Arabia, India, Russia, all these guys are going to take over the kind of global capital world. Everything that you thought about the West and them being the kind of global hegemon, wrong. It's all going to the East. So, Keith, I'll give you about 10 seconds, uh, up or down. Wh- where do you think we're going, East or West? I, I think nothing's going to replace the U.S. dollar in the world of paper currency. However, Dubai is certainly building a world-class, first-class um you know, city for business and finance. And um, if you haven't seen it, haven't been there, I recommend people see it. What's going on there is almost unimaginable. It is it is a wealthier city with better infrastructure than anything we have in America. Um, and finance is a big part of their plans. There's a lot of finance going on there. Um, Saudi Arabia wants to outdo uh, Dubai with their own, you know, special city they're trying to create. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. It's just kind of like, how every city in America wants to outdo Silicon Valley. So here in in, uh, in Phoenix, they have Silicon Desert. In New York City, there's Silicon Alley. You know, there's Silicon, um, you know, all these different Silicon places. But the, nobody ever out Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, there's one that has the network effect once that's cemented in place. Dubai has that for the Middle East. I'm skeptical of a Saudi city or whatever. But Dubai has to be seen to be believed and i think it's going to continue to grow and continue to boom and um western governments would be smart to take heed and adjust their policies not to bleed any faster than you know than it already is uh, and brent i'll send it your way there's kind of a narrative hey there's this battle between east and west of course not the people of the east and west we love each other but uh sometimes yeah. the governments of the east and west okay, well, you know, China might be taking over and they're going to be the new kind of global superpower. What do you think about that? So I don't think that China is going to be the new superpower. I don't completely rule it out, but I feel like when I talk to a lot of people, that's just a given and that China's on the rise, the U.S. is is on the demise, and it's just a matter of time before China kind of takes over as the global hegemon. And I just don't think that that is as likely as everybody else just accepts it to be. Now, um, and I also think that, uh, you know, I think, you know, Keith was just talking about Dubai. I happen to think that the Middle East is going to continue to rise in importance um, around the world. It's always been an important place. You know, it's, and, and that's why the, the the political and religious volatility that go along with it have always been a bit of a problem because it is a cross, at a crossroads for the world, right? It's like kind of the heart of the old spice trades. And as long as if you know anything about history or anything about the history of business, I mean, the Middle East is an enormous part of it. And so I, I don't expect that to change and I expect that to actually rise. Um, I think it's interesting to hear these, these comments uh, from Keith regarding Dubai. I knew that there was stuff going on there. I'm certainly not as familiar with it as he is. Um, I do think that I do think I, I know that there is stuff going on in Saudi Arabia. I know that they want to diversify away from just being an oil exporter. And I know that uh, this is one of the ways they're trying to do it. Um, I, I feel like, you know, having listened to Keith here a little bit, I need to get a trip over there and, and, and see this for myself because um, I, I am of the belief and this I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think that the Middle East is going to be important for a lot of things, not just for gold. Um, 
my thesis is that over the next, I don't know, I, I hate putting timelines on, on these things because it's very hard to predict these big macro moves. I tend to think that we're going to have a lot of volatility in the years ahead. And I think when that happens, you know, obviously I th- I'm known for thinking the dollar is going to go higher, but I also think gold is going to go a lot higher as well. On the other side of the dollar going higher, I think that that area of the world, Middle East, Eastern Africa, Western Australia, kind of the whole area circling the Indian Ocean, I think is probably going to be the best place in the world to invest. Um, I think they may have some trouble over the next few years. Um, but I think if you get the opportunity to buy some assets at distressed prices in that area of the world, once we get on the other side of whatever conflict that we're going to have, I think that is probably the biggest growth area for the world. It has the best demographics. Um, it has the lowest levels of debt. It has fantastic natural resources. So you get a lot of things going for you. If, and it, so if you if you have all those things already and then you can get in at a good price, your odds of doing poorly are greatly diminished and your odds of doing really well are greatly enhanced. So uh, I'm really interested in this part of the world. And Brent, I want to ask you now. So you have this thing you've called the dollar milkshake theory. For those who have not heard about it, clearly you're not on Twitter and you're not following Brent. So <laughs> just pause this interview right now and follow Brent. Um, but l- let me see if for a dumb guy like myself, if I can kind of uh, summarize what the theory entails. So a lot of people have looked at the United States and looked at our monetary and fiscal policy and said, hey, there is literally zero chance we will ever pay back this debt. It is growing exponentially. Our GDP, of what is even productive of the GDP, is certainly not growing exponentially. So that's a big problem. Our government has borrowed or printed or whatever term people want to use way too much money that they'll never be able to pay back. Therefore, our currency must be going to zero at some point. That framing totally fails to look relatively between our currency and the rest of the world's currencies, because other currencies are in the exact same problem that we have with central banking, central planning, and irredeemable credit or currency. And they actually have worse GDPs, worse economies, and worse troubles than we do with free speech, freer markets, freer economies. And so if you're thinking like an Austrian economist on the margin, you might suspect that the dollar will not actually collapse first to zero, not never, but just not first, but the marginal currencies will collapse first. The currency in Lebanon, the currency in Argentina, the currency in China, and the currency in Japan way, way, way long before the currency in the United States, the dollar. If that is true, those marginal currencies, all the capital stuck in those countries, will flee to the United States, the strongest currency, the strongest economy, that will relatively push up our dollar, pushing down their currencies. The more that continues, this kind of spirals until this same problem that's happened in all the marginal currencies happens in the main currency, the US dollar. From there, who knows what happens? Have I gotten the dollar milkshake theory close to correct? Now you've gotten it extremely well uh, described there. I mean, that's essentially what it is. I think if you just go and analyze the United States alone on its own, it's really hard to come to a conclusion other than it's a it's in a lot of trouble. So I don't deny that at all. And I and I used to believe that as a result, the dollar was going to fall precipitously and the US was going to fall versus the rest of the world. However, once I realized that I had not given the same level of analysis or the same critical eye to the rest of the world as I was putting on the United States, I realized, holy cow, I've you know, I've, I've been way too focused on one part of the world and not focused on the rest of the world. And when you realize that global capital has to go somewhere, the big, big asset allocators are not just going to sit in cash. They're going to put their money into assets. And so it becomes a relative gain. Then you have to stop completely analyzing things on an absolute basis and start to analyze them on a relative basis. And that's when I started to kind of figure out that the dollar was going to rise versus foreign currencies. uh, And that would cause all kinds of problems. And so essentially, you, you, you have described it very well. I think what will happen, and the reason I think that this is important now is, is because of all the debt in the world. Um, I feel like we're towards the end of this grand super debt cycle. I think you've probably heard a lot of other people talk about this. I'm, I'm not the only one. 
It's not that it can't get bigger. It's just that it's gotten to such a size. I think there are going to start to be ramifications of debt and you're already starting to see it. As a result, I think all the policies that we've really seen a lot post COVID and post global financial crisis, I think those are going to continue. Um, and so I think over time, fiat currencies are going to be debased. I don't really think there's a whole lot of other choice. The problem is, is if you, this, and this, this is probably the hardest part for me to explain to people and is where, where my communication of it to others gets tripped up the most is the dollar milkshake theory essentially says all fiat currency is going to get debased, including the U.S. dollar. It's just that the U.S. dollar will get debased at a slower rate than everything else. And that is how you get the dollar rising versus all other currencies. But then when you have gold rising versus the dollar, you have gold and dollars rising versus all the others. And that can be, so you can have an inflationary environment in the United States with the DXY or the dollar index or the dollar relative to other currencies rising. The pro and, and, and if you knew that was happening, it would be very easy just to go buy assets that did well inflation. You sit back and you ride the wave. The problem is because the whole world runs on the dollar. And when I say the whole world, I'm slightly exaggerating, but not by much. If you want to be an operator on the global stage, you need dollars. That may change someday, but right now you need dollars. And so the whole world has a lot of US dollar debt. They owe US dollars. They trade in US dollars. They get financing in US dollars. So the problem with the US dollar rising versus foreign currencies, even if all fiat currency is getting debased, is you end up having situations where you not you get in. So outside the United States, you get inflation in local currency terms, but you get massive deflationary pressures in U.S. dollar terms. That leads to potential defaults. And when you have defaults, money gets destroyed, it disappears. And so the, you get supply shocks, supply of dollar shocks. And so you can get these terrifying, de even, though if, even if you're in an overall inflationary debasement of currency trends, you can get these deflationary shocks along the way that just wreak havoc. You know, and that's what we saw several times over the, you know, we saw it a lot during 2008. We saw shades of it in 2018. We saw shades of it in the fall of 2019. We saw it in a big way in 2020. And, you know, and then last year we started to see it a little bit again. So, you know, but if you look over the last, let's, let's just use 15 years since the global financial crisis. Or if you just look over the last four years since 2008, five years since 2018, over that time period, despite all the bailouts, despite all the helicopter money, despite the stimulus plans, the dollar has risen versus foreign currencies. Gold has risen versus the dollar and versus foreign currencies. U.S. equities have risen versus not just the dollar, but versus all its global peers. And so you have this situation where the milkshake is largely playing out. Now, it's not perfect, and I'm certainly not going to get everything right. I'll, I'll often will explain how I think this is going to play out, and then I'll show how this has kind of played out over the last year, and they'll say, yeah, but it didn't happen here, and this didn't happen there. And like, I am not going to get this 100% right. Of course, I'm going to get some things wrong. But I think largely the thesis has played out. I think it continues to play out. And I think it does a better job of explaining why things have happened the way they've happened than anything else I've come across. Now, that's not to say that other people haven't been right. And it's not to say that, you know, I would love to come up, uh, I would love to, anybody that has explanations of, of why things have happened the way they've happened, I'm always open to reading it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, if it can help me become a better analyst and a better investor as a result, I, I'm all open to it. But I think by and large, my framework has helped me kind of get through the last five years with kind of a, 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 a an amount of clarity. And as a result, uh, uh, you know, peaceful sleep at night without totally freaking out about what's going to happen the next day. Um, anyway, so that's kind of a long rambling answer to your question. But uh, that, that that's kind of my framework. And I, and I think the way you explained it's pretty good. And Keith, I want to give it to you. Brent saying, hey, if there's any updates to my framework, I, I want to hear it. So how do you see this kind of dollar 
their currency derivatives, gold, and then of course, the nexus of all these kind of factors playing out because it really is not helpful for someone to say, hey, all currencies are getting debased. And that's my analysis. That is true. But you know, if we're all falling out of a helicopter, and I am the only one with a, uh, you know, parachute, it's not helpful to say, well, we're all falling out of a helicopter. It's like, well, yeah, but maybe I have a parachute and maybe I'm 50 feet above you. It doesn't mean we might not all fall or we might not all hit the ground. It's just where we are relative to each other. Maybe you'll grab onto me. Maybe that'll pull me down, right? To just say, well, we all fell out of a helicopter, therefore it's you know <laughs> useless. It's not really that helpful. That's kind of uh, the answer to Paul Krugman that says, well, you know, we all we, we owe it to ourselves. And so the, the analogy is, you know, the two of us standing here and I steal your wallet, you know, the balance sheet between us hasn't changed, right? We still have $100, right? But now I've taken that away from you, you know. Um, I, I think, I mean, I, I agree with Brent's, uh, you know, milkshake. As soon as I heard about it, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. And I, I probably go more extreme and I say the other currencies aren't competing against the dollar. They're dollar derivatives anyways. And then Jeff Snyder kind of, you know, uh, topped that. And he said, the entire world is, is basically a dollar world. And the other currencies are, I, I don't think this was his term, but, you know, basically local script, like going to some town in West Virginia, like it's a coal mining town. And they don't have dollars there, they have script. But I mean, the script has no value other than that you're buying stuff that the coal mining company bought in dollars, obviously. Um, and they sell the coal for dollars. So it's a dollar world. You know, I just had a conversation earlier today with a um, investor based out of Finland, and he's done a lot of business all over Europe. And he's talking about different companies and what their values are. And everything was dollar, 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 dollar. There's no mention of euros or any other currencies. I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, here's the European thinking that way. Um, I met with a, um, uh, you, you'll find this interesting, Brent, I think, I met with a family office in the Middle East and um, the principal and his uh, attorney slash advisor were there. And uh, so in their particular country, as in the UAE, um, you know, the currency is pegged to the dollar. And unlike a lot of these other pegs, theirs has been table flat for 20 plus years. Really hasn't. You know, the, the, the yuan is nominally pegged to the dollar, but you can see they keep adjusting the pegs. They can't they can't hold the line. Yeah. You know, they, the zombie the zombie horde is pushing on it and they keep retreating and they plant a peg, but it's only temporary. But in the case of the some of these Middle Eastern countries, the pegs really are stable um for a variety of reasons. And um there were two interesting things that came of that. And I said, Well, sure, the local currency is is stable in terms of dollars, but there's always a risk that pegs, you know, can snap. And so if you really want dollar exposure, why would you hold the local currency versus holding real dollars? And they looked at each other and, and he turned back to me and he said, that's our investment strategy exactly. Is yeah, we wanna have real dollar. When, when, you know, they, they have gold, they have other things, but for currency exposure, it's real dollars and not proxy dollars that are pegged to the dollar. Um, and then the good. Thing he, did, he said, is our economy is, is effectively dollarized because of the peg. He said, so we enjoy most of the advantages of the dollar minus one. And I said, what's that? And he said, we don't enjoy the low interest rate. So the flip side of maintaining the yeah. peg is you have to screw around with the interest rate to make it attractive for people to buy your currency. So, um, you know, local businesses, if they have access to dollar credit, then they have access to the dollar interest rate. If they have to borrow in local currency, it's as stable as the dollar, but the interest rates are much higher, and therefore they're not competitive, certainly on a global stage. Yeah. Uh, the local markets are much less efficient because the interest rates are much higher. And, you know, it, even there, it's like this peg currency, it's still a mess domestically as a result and of I that. I think a good way to explain this for people who are very into gold and believe in hard money as opposed to fiat currency, uh, one of the things that helped me kind of explain this idea to them is that, first of all, I think we can agree that as gold proponents, we are probably in the minority of the average person around the world. Now, outside the United States, gold is a lot more popular. Uh, but largely in the Western world, and I would and I would even say even in you know the Eastern world, on average, the average person is not as. Let me just interject there. So, just uh, yeah. in Turkey, somebody whom I, I I trust to know about such things, they said the average person in Turkey would have at least ten grams of gold, um, 
No, so, so everybody would have a minimum of 10 grams of gold. The average person would have a lot more than that. It's ubiquitous. In India, it's ubiquitous. So at least in yeah. those countries, now that's yes. not the same as Saudi Arabia or UAE, but in those right. countries, everybody has gold. It's just taken for granted. Of course, you have gold. Sure, uh, sure. And so, and so the, the way I've, I've helped explain it, I've, I've, let's just use the West as an example. I think it's fair to say that people who hold gold or who are advocates for gold are in the minority. Yeah, and, and people in that group would go further and say, not only should you have exposure to gold, but you should have exposure to physical gold. Because while an ETF or a mutual fund or one of these, you know, gold derivatives are not really gold. And there will come a time where the gold price may do very well, but your gold derivatives won't be worth very much. This is kind of the same thing with the dollar and foreign currencies, you know, and, and these pegged currencies, these pegged currencies or these other foreign currencies are kind of like gold ETFs or kind of like gold derivatives. And the dollar is the equivalent of gold. Now, I know I know in your mind you're saying, no, the dollar is not equivalent to gold. And I tend to agree with you and I'm sympathetic to your point. But if the whole world believes that fiat currency is the system and there are systems in place set up that, you know, these big asset allocators, they cannot just wake up one day and go put 50% of their portfolio in gold. There's investment committees they have to get through. There's, there's position limits. There's all kinds of hoops they would have to jump through to do that. Um, so in their world, the US dollar is the thing that everything is based on. Uh, you might not like that, and that might change someday, but as of right now today, that is the case. So if we get into a crisis, the dollar is going to be that thing that is underlying, and the dollar derivatives, in other words, foreign currencies, are going to be the things that fall in value in the same way that physical gold would be the thing that holds value, um, but these gold ETFs fail. And I think once you kind of understand that's the way the system is set up, it kind of helps understand the progression of things and how things will likely go. So I am a huge proponent of gold. And I've said from the very first day that I mentioned this whole milkshake theory, I said that in the end, gold will win. I think that is the asset that everybody will ultimately flee to as this you know, current monetary system, fiat current, however you want to describe this, as this crisis develops, I think ultimately gold is the one that comes out on top, but it's not going to be a straight line and there will, and, and the dollar will do very well if for no other reason than that the game is rigged in the dollar's favor. And so I, and, and I think it's really important to understand that. And, and, and that has, that is what has led me to this whole dollars and gold theory uh, where dollars and gold rise versus everything else. And then ultimately gold wins. I just don't think we're to the final chapter yet. I think a lot of people are frustrated with the way the global economy is. They're frustrated with these rolling crises that we have, and they want to just get to the end of the book or the end of the movie, get everything past us and beyond to something new. And I would like that as well, but I just think we have several more chapters to play out before we get there. Um, I'm cognizant of the fact that we could get to the end of the book very quickly. Maybe I wake up tomorrow and you know that's the final chapter, but it's. I also think it could take several more years before it fully plays out. And as such, as someone who manages capital for other people, you know, I have, and as a fiduciary of their capital, I have to understand the system in which I operate. And the system in which I operate is the one that I try to explain via the Stoller milkshake theory. And Brian, I really do like that analogy, which is, hey, if you're a gold bug, what is your standard argument? ETFs and other derivatives that are not physical gold might not perform as well as the actual true underlying asset, physical gold. If you take those exact same arguments, which people are for when they're gold bugs, take that exact argument and swap out a couple words, and the US dollar is that base asset, and the derivatives based on that asset are the euro, the yen, the yuan, which are derivatives of the US dollar currency, everyone would say, well, yeah, of course, in a time of crisis, the actual underlying asset, the US dollar, will probably perform better than all these underlying derivatives, which base their value and, and could have, you know, very different performances. And so yeah. it's funny to hear gold bugs, you know, tout one argument, but not another. The hardest thing I think of that whole argument or that sequence is 
arguing that the other currencies are dollar derivatives. And now the gold bugs, being a very small minority of, of uh, certainly in the West of everybody, I, I think a lot of them are just looking for whatever rationalizes, you know, confirmation bias, right? That yeah. gold's going to go up and, and it's because the dollar's going to hyperinflate versus all the other currencies. But more sophisticated investors just absolutely balk at the other currencies being dollar derivatives. And um, that that's an argument that has to be made and proven. And, um, and I've written a ton about it. I think Jeff Snyder is probably the one guy who's probably written more about it than I have and talks about it a great deal. That, yeah, they really are dollar derivatives. They really are. Now, it's, it's pretty clear when you have one of these uh, gold currencies that is pegged to the dollar, why that effectively is a dollar derivative. But why is the euro a dollar derivative? Um, you know, it's less clear. And you can point to look at all the dollars they have on the balance sheets of all the European, the Euro European Central Bank and, you know, the, the Bundesbank and all the others. But people don't really get that relationship. These are dollar derivatives. And therefore, they can't survive the collapse of the dollar, even if they somehow lasted until the end. If the dollar were going down in flames, so would they. And they're going to yeah. go down first for, for the reasons of why a gold ETF is going to go down before gold. Yeah. You know, for the same reason. So that I think that's the, the intuitive part. But the dollar, them being dollar derivatives is the part that people bark at. Yeah, you and you did a you you've discussed this with me before, and I think you're probably the first person who explained it this way. And I was like, that's a very good way to explain it. And 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 it's basically saying that you can't expect a call option on Apple to stay to keep value while at the same time having Apple go to zero. If okay. Apple goes bank, if Apple goes bankrupt or goes to zero, those Apple call options are not going to be worth anything. Right. And it's right. kind of the same thing with, with other currencies and the dollar. The other thing that I want to say that I want to make sure people hear this, because I think sometimes when I get into these discussions and I use the term gold bug, people will think that I'm making fun of them or it's some kind of a derogatory term. I, I, I don't think of it that way. I, I, I actually consider myself a gold bug. At heart, I am a gold bug. But I've had to, in order to understand what's going on in the world, and in order to effectively manage other people's capital in the world in, in, in a fiduciary manner, I have to understand the world as it is, not the world as I want it to be. Um, so even though I am a gold bug at heart, um, I have to operate in, quote unquote, the real world as it is right now. And if and when that world ever changes, I would be in favor of gold having a much bigger role than it currently does. But I don't, I, this is just, this is just my little disclaimer that I, I, I don't want people to think of when, when I say gold bug as, as a negative thing, I actually, you know, I consider myself one. So if you think I'm making fun of you, then I'm making fun of myself at the same time. Well, well Brent, it's I, one I, of those things where people are guilty of assuming what they must prove. Yeah. <laughs> Today, the world gold has not got a monetary role. And even the central banks that are buying gold, it, it's not gold backing the currency the way it was, you know, let's say before 1913, it just isn't. Um, yeah. you can, and I, I've never taken offense and I know you say, don't, you know, don't imagine the world as it could be just focus on what is. Yeah. And, and I, and I think of myself in that category, but at the same time, I'm building a company with a mission to change the world and bring gold back into the monetary system. But that involves all the necessary hard work saying, where are we today? And if I want to pave a road from here to there, I have to understand every bump along the way. I have to understand the topology. Yeah. Oh, there's a couple of rivers to cross, and there's a big canyon over here, and you know, here's a radioactive zone or whatever it may be. You have to work <laughs> around. I mean, there's yeah. all these things you have to deal with. Otherwise, you're just trying to teleport to the end and say, okay. Right. And at the end of the day, we're going to have unicorns and uh, rainbows and sparkles, and everybody wins. And you're like, okay, you're just another idiot utopian. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, where do you, I'm, I'm curious. What what is the the this the businesses that are taking place and that are sprouting up and that that, that are increasing in volume in Dubai? Are these um, exchanges? Are these just wholesale, you know, marketplaces? Are these retail marketplaces? Like, what is happening in Dubai and I guess maybe the Greater Middle East that you see that is that is potentially not only profitable for people who are aware of it, but they're, you know, so, so world changing that if, and when we do get a new monetary system, that it could be a, you know, a big beneficiary of it. 
I, I think it starts with regulatory and tax arbitrage. So, I mean, all businesses have to be licensed in Dubai. And unless you're in Emirati, which is a tiny fraction of the population, to, to, to be allowed to be on their soil, you know, you have to have a visa. And so it's, it's not like America where, you know, first of all, 300 some million of us have a right to be here. Um, and then everyone else, uh, you know, if they can get a visa or whatever, you know, it becomes permanent. In Dubai, your visa is tied to your job. You know, you lose your job. You've got 30 or 60 days to get another job or else you're done. And they, and they force you to leave. Businesses, every business is licensed. That said, unlike the regulatory state here, they don't turn the licensing thing into this subjective and ever more onerous, you know, process. They just want to know what you're doing. And then after that, it's like, okay, you know, the license is approved. You've got it. It's relatively cheap. Then, you know, enforcement is, okay, are you doing the business that you said you're going to do? Okay, great. If you're not, if you're doing other things, they can shut you down, which isn't good. But from a regulatory perspective, it's a hell of a lot less onerous than it is in the Western world. And from a tax perspective, they have not had a corporate tax or a personal income tax. Now they're just instituting a corporate income tax. I think it's 9%, which doesn't make me happy, but it's a hell of a lot less than yeah. uh, anywhere else. And even in Singapore, which is a vaunted low tax you know, regime is 15%. Um, so that's the first thing. Then in terms of gold specifically, I mean, it's a gold culture. You know, the Arab culture has, has always valued and appreciated gold, let's just say much more than the American culture does today. Um, and then you also have a mix of people from South Asia, India, Pakistan. Um, so you have a mix of, and Turkey, you have a mix of cultures that are all gold-loving, gold-appreciating. The next thing is you have um, probably all, or virtually all of the gold from Africa is now coming to Dubai. I mean, I, I may be hyperbolizing slightly when I say yeah. all. Um, Dubai, you know, if you ask anybody in London or Zurich about gold coming from Africa, they'll all roll their eyes. Oh my God, you know, there's no AML. You know, this is all conflict minerals and child slavery and narco-terrorism, you know, gold and all that. If you ask anybody in Dubai, they say, oh no, we're a very serious jurisdiction. We take AML, KYC seriously, responsible gold sourcing. Um, I think there certainly is cheating there, but the jurisdiction realizes that they have to get a handle on this. But I think they've been, um, uh, you know, less onerous and less crazy about some of this regulation, making it easier for traders to spring up in Dubai to import all that gold from Africa. And and I, I don't think most of it nowadays, I mean, historically, it's probably a different story, but I don't think most of it nowadays is literally, you know, black gold that's, you know, coming and cheating and being smuggled or whatever. Uh, to get the paperwork, to get the gold into Dubai, you have to prove who the source is, who's the mine, are they compliant, are they licensed in their jurisdiction, are they paying their export duties and whatever. But then all that gold comes to Dubai because it's easier to get it there than Switzerland or anywhere else. And then that makes them a hub for physical trading at the same time that London is becoming more onerous, more taxi, um, less connected to the EU, and therefore they've lost some critical mass there. And I think I see the the locus of the physical gold market just sort of logically segueing from London to Dubai. That then creates an ecosystem of, um, you know, refiners and other value-added fabricators, mints and, and you know, jewelers, obviously, there, um, a variety of dis distribution networks. From there, the gold, most of the gold is obviously not kept in Dubai, although there are companies that are selling it, vaulting it. You know, we know one that... Um, you have a big enough account when you're flying to Dubai, they'll pick you up in a Rolls Royce, drive you to the <laughs> vault, do your transaction, and then they'll either drive you back to the airport or they'll drive you to your hotel. Um, so, but on top of all this, there's what I'll call the more sophisticated investors. Let's just take family offices as a category. It's not just, you know, in the Western world, buy gold and, you know, wait for the price to go up and then sell it, I guess is kind of the, the thesis. And then, of course, if the price goes down, they sell it because they, their losses become unbearable, right? But it's, it's as Warren Buffett truthfully and disingenuously at the same time said, you know, gold, you know, you, 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 buy, you, you buy the gold and you put, it on a, you put it in your desk drawer and 20 years later, you pull it out, still the same lump of metal. It's true. And it's it kind of useless in that sense. 
Well, in Dubai, I've seen, uh, first of all, the sophisticated investors want dollar liquidity against their gold, not for consumer purposes, but to invest in other assets. Um, in some cases, they're trading gold against other capital assets already anyways. Um, they're looking for strategies that produce returns on gold. And so one common one that you see, um, and there's a few Swiss private banks that will do this as well, you know, selling covered call type strategies, they call it getting a rental income on your gold. Now, the problem with that, and the people in the Western world may, may not get it, I think the people in Dubai probably more so, is that just in the precise crisis, that's the whole reason why you own the damn gold. And you're not owning the gold for it to go from $2,000 to $2,200. I mean, that's exciting right. for somebody who owns a lot of gold, but yeah. look, there's a lot of ways to make 10%, and you don't need the gold market to make 10%. It's when there's a real crisis and currencies are suddenly free-falling and what you thought was a parachute, you don't have a parachute anymore. That's the precise moment you'd want the gold. Well, selling covered calls, in that strategy, all your gold's going to be called away. Right. The precise moment when you needed it and wanted it, it's gone. Anyways, I think they get that, and they're looking for other gold-related income streams, forwards, all kinds of stuff that they can do. And so they're, they're very receptive to the monetary metals proposition. Um, yeah. As an aside... That they're, they're aware that gold is coming back into the monetary system in a more serious way. And I just think there's a whole ecosystem there of, you know, government understands it. You know, Dubai is broken into these free zones. And when you, you know, create a business there, move a business there, you move into the free zone that is applicable to your business. Anybody in gold would be going to the DMCC, Dubai Multi-Commodity Center. Those people get gold. Yeah. You know, imagine talking to a U.S. regulator about gold. <laughs> they're they're going to laugh. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, I uh, think, you know, I think this is a good, I, I want not to cut you off, but I want, I want to make a point really quick because I think this is a good place to do it. From my perspective, one of the reasons that places like Dubai, maybe Saudi Arabia, certainly India, uh, Turkey, the reason that people in those countries always own at least 10 ounces of gold or whatever it is, or be, or the reason they have an affinity for gold and the reason they have historically used gold is not because the US dollar has historically been a horrible currency. The reason they own gold is their own currencies that their own governments yeah. manage have historically been horrible currencies, right? So I think when you when you hear about people in India buying gold or people in China buying gold or people in Turkey or, or wherever it is buying gold, it's certainly a, a good thing to understand because you know that's where I think demand is growing or or has typically been higher than the West. Um, but it's not that those people are sitting over there looking at the U.S. and say, "Wow, Joe Biden is really out of control," and the dollar is going. It's not that they're not saying that. It's not that the dollar isn't a bad currency, but that is not his. But the dollar or the U.S. domestic currency is not what has led to this historical cultural affiliation uh, with gold. And, 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 and the idea that they are all buying gold because they're worried about the dollar losing value, that may be, again, a derivative of it, but the primary reason they're buying it is they've seen the government confiscate their wealth before. They've lived through hyperinflation. They've seen collapsing currencies. And so, um, you know, I think that's probably why someplace like Dubai uh, and, and this area of the world may, you know, once we get through this crisis that I foresee coming, may be a great place to, 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 to be because they, they, they will have wealth that has been preserved through that, uh, through, through that, uh, that crisis. And Keith, I want to ask you a question, which has kind of been on my mind. So a lot of people have said, Brent, Keith, you guys are total boomer morons. You and your shiny pet rocks. It's all about crypto. Blockchain is going to take over the world. We're going to use Bitcoin in El Salvador. And trust me, the dollar, its days are numbered. We're all going to be using uh, cryptography and, and our smartphones. You guys want like coins jingling in a per sack or something. You guys are, you know, uh, gold bugs in the in the rude sense. So, Keith, I want to ask you a question here, which has been on my mind, which is how do we overcome Gresham's law? And maybe the answer is, you know, monetary metals, and you can answer it that way. But how do we overcome Gresham's law? I'm thinking specifically for Bitcoin people, it feels like, well, if Bitcoin is this incredible asset that just has to go up to a million dollars and all the other currencies are going to fall, 
when you want to be spending and using your dollars or your local currency and hoarding your Bitcoin, never using it, never spending it. And I mean, how, how are we going to plan on financing productive business with Bitcoin if you never want to use it? So I have to correct two things. First of all, I'm not a boomer. I'm a proud <laughs> member of Generation X, man. Same. So, uh, anybody calling me a boomer is just simply wrong, on a matter of fact. Secondly, gold's not a rock. It's a metal. And uh, it's separated from the rock. That's the whole point of uh, gold mining and refining. So uh, if you want to call it a shiny patent metal, go do that. But it's not a rock. Um, okay. So substantively, um, you know, how do you get around Gresham's Law? Or So Gresham's Law says if two things legally have a value that is fixed to be equal, but the market value is different, then people will give up the one that has the legal value that's higher than its market value and hoard the one that whose real value is uh, higher than the legal value. But the corollary to Gresham's Law is that, you know, if I have a gold coin worth roughly $2,000, or I have 2000 you know, I have $2,800 bills, and I have to settle a, a $2,000 uh, obligation, I would choose to, to spend the paper rather than keep the gold. Um, obviously, and there, and there is no way of working around that. And that's, that's the problem. So people... Right. And I, I've had many conversations with companies that try to create these spend your gold, you know, type programs where, you know, buy gold with us, store it, and we'll attach it to a debit card so you can spend your gold. And I'm like, you know, people, a lot of people would be happy to be paid in gold. Um, but I don't think very many people want to pay out gold. Um, and so there is no working around that. I mean, that's just one of those universal laws, you know, deal with the world as it is. And, and you can't get to utopia by assuming that law away. So how do you get these things into productive use? Well, my argument is finance. Um, you have to pay interest on something. It's the only way to pull it. If it has a high, um, you know, value uh, or, or a non-diminishing marginal utility, I'll get back to Bitcoin on that point in a minute. The only way to get people to bring it out to market is to is to pay interest. Interest is the only force that brings it out to market. Even when the government sends guys with machine guns door to door, they don't get a lot of it because people just bury it deeper. It was buried one meter below the ground, then you know they realize the government's coming with machine guns. They'll bury it two or three meters down, and um, you know put in a whole new garden. Um, so, interest is the only force that draws it out, and the only way to pay interest, you, you know. And and I, I I think I stand vindicated. Before all the these platforms that pay interest on your crypto started, I said there's no way to pay interest on Bitcoin. Then these platforms started, and I said I don't think it's sound. I think I stand vindicated on that point which I made in 2017 or 2018 when, when that started to happen. Um, and uh, the only way to pay interest on something sustainably is to finance a productive enterprise. Somebody's producing something real in the real world. They need to borrow capital. And, um, uh, you know, if they borrow gold or they borrow Bitcoin, then they'll pay interest in gold or Bitcoin. The problem with borrowing Bitcoin is it's unstable. And if Bitcoin goes up a billion X from where it is now, then anybody who borrowed it is going to be, you know, ruined, you know, long before then. I mean, think about your home mortgage. Let's say you pay $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month in mortgage. Imagine if that went up to $20,000 a month, 10x. You're ruined. I mean, yeah. there's, there's no way. So um, you need something that's stable and uh, and argue that's gold. Now, and this gets back to a point Brent was making earlier about people use the dollar because they perceive it to be a dollar world, which is certainly true. But also, if you owe a million dollars, to, which you use to finance your farm or your factory or your fleet of trucks or, or your ship or whatever, um, and you don't pay it, they take your asset away. You're wiped out. So it's not just entirely perception. The, the value of the dollar is supported by all the debtors. And since there are dollar debtors globally, everybody globally is supporting the value of the dollar by being in dollar debt, which they can't get out of at this point. It's a trap that doesn't have uh, an exit. Not an aggregate. I mean, any one debtor can get out, but not an aggregate. Um, I don't know if I answered yeah, your question. No, and it's. I, I think that's a. You know, the, the, I'm just going to jump in real quick because I. Th I think it's really important to understand that is that you can. Two points is I think a lot of times people will always ask me, well, which should I own, dollars or gold? And I'm like, you don't have to choose between the two. You can have exposure to both. This is a false, you know, competition that says you have to pick one over the other. You can own both. They'll both go up, you know, against other currencies or, you know, they can both be used in different circumstances, but it's not like it has to be an all or nothing thing. Um, the, the, the other thing that I wanted to say was that, 
with 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 regard to um, the system, it's it's a closed system. Now you can exit the system by buying gold, but as as we but as we explained earlier, most people, or at least the big global asset allocators, they operate within the framework that has been designed for them. And so even if you want to exit, it's important to understand that most of the world is not going to exit the system. And well, they and, Mr. And, Bin, the guy who yeah. sold the gold is entering. Yeah, so, no, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. And so when you understand that, that, that it's a closed system and you understand things that have to happen within that system, it, it is really rigged. And I use that just because it's the easiest way to explain it. It's rigged in favor of the dollar. And so the idea that, you know, the dollar is going to crash and that the yen and the euro are all of a sudden going to be flourishing or, or the yuan is going to flourish. And that's it just the system is not designed for that. And if a new system were put in place and the rest of the world were to say, we're going to this new system, then they have to deal with all that dollar debt. And a lot of people think that they owe that dollar debt to the United States, but they don't. They owe it to each other. That dollar credit, that euro dollar credit has been extended to each other amongst themselves. So if they, if, even if they were to default that debt, you know, you said if, if they default, their asset gets stolen. Well, even if they were to do that, they're not defaulting on the United States. They're defaulting on each other. So if that debt disappears, somebody else's asset disappears outside the United States. So you would have to get almost the rest of the world all at the same time to agree what new system we're going to go to, who's going to implement the system, who's going to monitor the system, and who's going to enforce the system. I'm not going to say that that is impossible, but if you've ever been in a meeting with more than three people, you will know that it's, ex you will know that it's extremely challenging. Well, just, and just so, from an easier perspective, imagine you're a creditor in Austria, your debtor is in Hungary, and they've had long, obviously, commerce between those two places. And the debtor in Hungary owes you a million dollars. And now some Eurocrat in Brussels, who's part of some World Economic Forum Davos scheme involving Africa and Argentina and who knows what else, says, we, we want to re-denominate. We want you to sign as the creditor to re-denominate this debt that the Hungarian owes you in some sort of new world yeah. bank or credit. Right. And yeah, if you, you don't take that... If you don't sign, he continues to owe you dollars. If you do sign, you're now going to get redenominated and something. The only thing you know about it is that the people that are pushing it are these world <laughs> governance types, and you know nothing else about it. Are you going to take that deal? <laughs> you and that's all a, the other creditors in the world are going to say no, thank you. That's that's so, the perfect example. That's the perfect example. That's the perfect example. And and Brent, I know sometimes Keith and I joke. Sometimes on Twitter, we'll put up a poll every once in a while, which is like, all right, gold bugs, dollar people. You need to send your dollars or your gold in, in whatever uh, way you identify. You need to send your capital to one of the BRICS nations. You can choose Brazil. You can choose Lula. You can choose Russia. You can choose Putin. You can choose India and you can choose Modi. Or you can use choose China, Chi, or, of course, South Africa. Okay, wh which yep. of the BRICS would you like to send your money to? And, of course, people in the comments, well, you know, like I would... The answer is you don't want to send your money to any of these people. No one is saying that Uncle Sam is really... Uh, you know, no. a great predator, but have you seen the other people in line? And so, of course, <laughs> this goes back to that kind of relative currency king. Monetary Metals, Keith, myself, Jeff Dice will all be in the New Orleans Investment Conference. Brent, you will be there as well. I don't want you to give away your topic, but I do want to ask you, what's a question I should be asking all future guests of the Gold Exchange podcast? And last time you were on, you wanted me to ask, okay, hey, uh, if, if you're analyzing the Fed and you're talking about the Fed in the podcast, why don't you ask about other central banks? So I'm going to ask you your own question quickly and then say, yep. what should I be asking future guests? Well, so largely, I don't think they're going to get out of their conundrum. I think that they are going to eventually be forced to try to choose between their currency markets and their bond markets. I think they will ultimately choose their bond markets because if they don't choose to save their bond markets, they will have a banking system crisis. And you have to understand that the bond market is how these governments raise money. So if they're not going to, if, if they no longer want to raise money and literally just physically print it, then they can let the bond market go. But I think they will choose the bond market over the currency. And when they do that, I think their currencies will fall precipitously versus the US dollar. So I, I don't think they're, the short answer is I don't think they're going to get out of it. I think they're going to try, but I think they're going to fail. 
Um, and then this this quickly leads into one other thing is I you know this whole idea that the BRICS were going to launch this currency and they were going to back it with gold and that is going to be the catalyst to send gold higher. I, I, th I think it fundamentally misses the premise. I, I think gold is going to go to five thousand dollars, but I think it's going to go to five thousand dollars because governments do stupid things and fail, and not because they do smart things and succeed. So all of these schemes that involve other countries going to a gold-backed currency, in my mind, they're they're just completely uh, crazy. Um, the other thing, but to the second part of your question, what should people be asking now? If and when you have other guests on who are running either gold mining businesses or you know, they're, they're, they're managing gold miner um, a fund or they have some gold-related business and in some form or another, they're selling gold, you should ask them what they receive when they sell the gold and which currency, <laughs> which currency other the dollar that they are planning to move to. And if they say we're not planning to move to any currency other than the dollar, you have your answer. That sounds like uh, cross-examination in court. Isn't it true, <laughs> sir, that when you sell your gold, you receive U.S. dollars and only U.S. dollars? Yeah, well, Isn't it's, it's true. true right? In your financial report given in your 10Q uh, you know, three days ago, you did not disclose any intentions to own any foreign currencies other than the U.S. dollar. Right. And you already know the answer to the question before you ask it. Where can people find more of your incredible work if they want to check out Santiago Capital? And of course, where can we read more about the dollar milkshake theory? So there's a couple different ways. Um, my business, uh, my actual business is a, is a, is a money management business and I, I manage capital for high net worth individuals. I have a, a website that's really just a landing page, just SantiagoCapital.com. It has uh, you know a few regulatory documents and my contact information. So if anybody's looking for those types of services and are interested in talking to me further, I'm, you know, you can go to SantiagoCapital.com. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Santiago AU Fund, or you can just search for Santiago Capital. And then we also have our own podcast uh, called the, the Milkshakes Pod. So at MilkshakesPod.com, or you can go to at MilkshakesPod on Twitter and find us there as well. Brent, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Gold Exchange Podcast, and we'll see you in New Orleans. Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks so much, Brent. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Monetary Metals. Monetary Metals is a different kind of gold company. Others buy and sell gold. Monetary Metals operates the Gold Yield Marketplace, a platform of products that offer a yield on gold paid in gold to investors and institutions, and are gold financing simplified, reliable financing denominated in gold with a built-in hedge for gold-using and gold-producing businesses. To learn more, visit www.monetary-metals.com. See you next time.